ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Friday, the 1st of December. I'm Sabra Lang, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken is visiting Israel as the ceasefire deal between Israel and Hamas is due to expire. Mr Blinken's met Israel's Prime Minister shortly after a terror attack inside Jerusalem. Our correspondent is Adam Harvey. Adam, this attack, tell us about what happened in Jerusalem. Well, it was in the morning peak hour and uh, at a bus stop just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And a car with two Palestinian brothers from East Jerusalem pulled up at the bus stop and came out of the car, guns blazing. They killed three uh, Israelis who were waiting at the bus stop. But within seconds, another car pulled up with two off-duty soldiers in it and gun battle started and it was all over in about 10 seconds after that with the attackers dead. But it's safe to say that it's put a city on edge that's made it even more tense Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, was in town today urging Benjamin Netanyahu to do more to protect civilians during the next phase of the war, that that pretty much inevitable next phase. Mr Netanyahu was, I think, fired up by what had just happened in Jerusalem and and he had this to say. I've just finished a meeting with the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, a short while after the killers from Hamas murdered Israelis here in Jerusalem. And I've said to him, this is the same Hamas, the same Hamas that carried out the terrible massacre on October 7th, the same Hamas that tries to kill us everywhere. And we told him that we've sworn, I've sworn, to eradicate Hamas. Nothing will stop us. We will continue this war until we reach our three objectives. Free all our hostages, eliminate Hamas, and to ensure that we won't face such a threat from Gaza ever again. This is all playing out, of course, while the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas has been extended again, I think. What's the latest on that and the hostage releases? Well, the ceasefire is still up in the air. It's pretty much a repeat of the last few nights. There are negotiations going on as we speak about a possible extension. We have had another group of hostages start to come out, including 21-year-old French-Israeli citizen Mia Shem. She was abducted from the Nova Music Festival on October 7, and you might remember seeing footage of her from inside Gaza having her arm... She'd just had arm surgery and her arm was pinned and bandaged. That was that first video that we saw of a hostage from inside Gaza. Most of the women and children have come out, we think, with a few exceptions, like the Bibas family, including those two very young children, and 20-year-old Noah Agamani. She was the woman who was seen on a motorbike on October 7 calling out for help as it disappeared off into Gaza. So there aren't many women and children left who could come out. So for the ceasefire to be extended, it might have to be expanded to another category like men or female soldiers. So that'll determine, I think, whether this ceasefire gets extended any longer. But we know Israel wants to continue with the fight. Benjamin Netanyahu keeps saying that. So sometime over the next few days, I think it's likely that this war resumes. Correspondent Adam Harvey there in Jerusalem. It's the first day of summer and Christmas is nearly here. And we're also a few weeks away from the federal government's mid-year budget update. In Canberra's jargon, it's known as MIEFO. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is managing expectations. He's not saying if a budget surplus will be repeated. Former Treasury economist Chris Richardson sees a $10 billion surplus this year. 
but thinks the good news can't last with smaller than predicted deficits set to return. Chris Richardson is speaking here with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Uh, the government is still rolling in money, but yes, expecting uh, about a $10 billion surplus this year, dropping into small deficits after that. But if you look at the five years uh, through to 26, 27, basically the budget will have been balanced across that period. And it's still raining cash with all that tax revenue from commodities, but how long can that last? Not forever. Uh, you know, basically Australia is being paid a fortune by the world for the sorts of things that we sell. Iron ore is a great example. You know, that price uh, expected by the government in its budget figuring uh, to fall away is in fact trading at more than double the levels that the government expected. So given all the tax receipts and Treasury coffers are overflowing, there's still that question of people wanting relief from the high cost of living. Uh, It is very, very tricky. And the politics of this uh, are getting tricky. Uh, Although the surplus uh, is still pretty strong, the reasons driving it are changing. Uh, Yes, you know, things like the iron ore price means uh, the company tax take uh, remains really high and much higher than the government expected. But the momentum uh, in the tax take currently has swung to personal taxes. Uh, That's where the big uh, dollars are coming in. Uh, and, And the challenge for the government is people will see the government's got money, I haven't. Why aren't they helping? And just looking at the games that get played in the lead-up to MyEFO, if there is good news, as you say, about a $10 billion surplus, why aren't they announcing that now? Because it is a really tricky situation for the government to say, we're rolling in money even if you're not. And, and people's standard of living is under considerable pressure. Your wages haven't kept up uh, with prices. Your personal tax uh, bill is much higher. People are looking for help. The government really has to be careful around that, though, because if it gives people help, uh, you know, that means usually giving them money one way or another. Uh, And if they spend it, that can add to inflation and add to the problem. Those rivers of gold from commodities, they're going to last for a little while longer. But what about the big reforms that are needed to the tax system, for example, to to set the country up for the next decade? Yeah, look, we have a very rickety tax system that could be done better on all sorts of fronts. Neither side of politics has really done anything fundamental for a long time. Now, uh, we get little band-aids and and sticky tape and there's much uh, screaming and yelling about that. And we've got challenges uh, on the spending side uh, as well. The NDIS Uh, you know, a much-needed way to help uh, disabled Australians, but the increase in the spend there uh, has been really remarkable. The OECD seems pretty confident that inflation is falling and that the Reserve Bank's cash rate rises have peaked. How confident are you about that and also about their prediction that there'll be cash rate cuts by the end of next year? I do think Australia and the world are winning the fight on inflation. There's no guarantee that there's not another rate rise out there, but it is not my expectation. Uh, The news on inflation continues to be remarkably good and so far uh, we haven't seen too much damage to Australia's economy and Australia's unemployment rate. So, so far, so good and still on that narrow path. Economist Chris Richardson, founder of Rich Insights, speaking there with Peter Ryan. Federal Parliament has another week to run before it wraps up for the year. The recent High Court ruling that found indefinite detention of non-citizens was illegal if there wasn't a prospect of sending them to another country dominated debate, with the discussion becoming ugly. 
It will now be next week before new laws are introduced into Parliament to deal with that, along with a conga line of premiers demanding more money. David Spears is our political lead and host of Insiders. David, the discussion over the High Court ruling has dominated the week, including how the government will respond. There's still no sign of new laws to deal with that. Why? Sabra, designing a whole new preventative detention regime clearly isn't easy. The government keeps telling us it would like all of those who've been released to still be detained, so presumably it wants something that's going to see as many as possible back behind bars, but it will also you know, be under enormous pressure from the opposition to have that net cast as wide as possible, yet it's still got to come up with something that's that's going to comply with the Constitution. I mean, the worst outcome here would be another High Court defeat on this that forces people back out of detention again and, and perhaps closer to the next election. So the government's got to get the balance right. It will introduce the legislation next week, the final week of Parliament for the year, and it wants it passed before everyone packs up for Christmas. Of course, the opposition says it should have been working on all of this months ago, well in advance of last month's High Court ruling. It argues this preventative detention regime should have been ready to roll immediately after that judgment was delivered. And already a lower court, the federal court, has used that High Court ruling as a precedent to free someone who's been detained for 10 years. Is the government mindful of how this could cascade? Well, there's no sign it was ready for this further curveball delivered by the federal court. Uh, Earlier in the week, the government was insisting the 141 people released were it. That was it. Now, this decision yesterday of a lower court has taken the number to 142, and it is a little unclear whether there could be more. Now, this one relates to an Iranian man who arrived 10 years ago on an asylum seeker boat. He was being held in what's called community detention in Perth. A federal court judge has ordered his release after the High Court ruling against indefinite immigration detention. So this man will now be subjected to the same conditions as the the other 141, ankle bracelet, curfews and so on. But as I say, it's unclear at this stage how many more detainees could be in a similar category. Is this how the government will have wanted to end the sitting year? It's dealing with this issue. The debate's become ugly. A minister's accused Peter Dutton of prioritising pedophiles over children and there have been calls for the immigration minister to be sacked. Is this all the normal argy-bargy of politics? Well, Sabra, as you know, the end of a parliamentary year is often chaotic, um, can be ugly and can be even uh, dangerous politically for incumbent governments. This is certainly not where the Albanese government wants to be. This is not an issue it's winning on. Uh, to be sure, this High Court uh, decision is is not one it wanted. Uh, you know, unsurprisingly, voters aren't thrilled about a cohort of detainees which does include some murderers and rapists being released into the community. Uh, And it has created a really difficult problem for the government to resolve. But as it scrambles to find that solution, the government is looking politically spooked. It is looking defensive. That overreach we saw this week in suggesting that Peter Dutton is is somehow a pedophile protector, I mean, that was an example of overreach. And this, together with the cost of living concerns that are there, is contributing to something of a mid-term slump for the government. Look, again, that's a pretty standard thing at this point in the cycle. The big question now is whether Anthony Albanese can turn it around, uh, achieve what no Prime Minister since John Howard has managed and go on to win two successive elections. At least he had some better news on inflation uh, this week, heading in the right direction. That will be a bit of a relief to the government. 
And quickly, next week, there's a National Cabinet scheduled for the Prime Minister and Premiers on Wednesday. Despite most of the Premiers being Labor, it looks like they want Anthony Albanese to set aside billions more. It's certainly not getting easier for the Prime Minister. No, it's not. Federal and state treasurers meet today, and then, as you say, the leaders meet for the National Cabinet meeting Wednesday next week. Look, the states want more from the Commonwealth for GST top-up payments. Um, That could cost the Commonwealth about $5 billion a year. The feds want the states to shoulder more of the cost of services currently provided through the NDIS. So, look, once again, nothing unusual about federal-state fights over funding, but again, it's another headache the Prime Minister could probably do without. The ABC's political lead, David Spears. The internet undoubtedly has made life easier for many. For young people with disability, 70% say they find it easier being themselves online rather than when they're with face-to-face with people. They're able to connect more easily than uh, with those who have the same interests to meet new friends compared with others. They're the key findings from a new survey from the eSafety Commissioner, Julia Inman-Grant, but there is a downside to the research. Young people with a disability are more likely to be exposed to harmful content and abuse. Commissioner, good morning. This research shows that the internet has been liberating for young people with a disability. Does that outweigh the harms they face online? Well, I think we need to talk about a little bit more of the positives of the internet. And in many ways, it has become that great equalizer, particularly for young people with a disability, because users have been encumbered by structural barriers they've encountered in the physical world. And what young people with a disability tell us is that they feel much more comfortable to be themselves. And um, they're creative and they're making friends and they're talking about um, common challenges in a way they don't feel that they can do face to face. So I think that's a fantastic thing. And they continue to do this despite the fact that seven in 10 young people with a disability will experience some form of online abuse. Your survey also shows, though, that when they do face uh, that abuse, they are more likely to tell their parents or guardians and take action to block or unfriend people when they're confronted by that. Why do you think that is? Well, I think because parents and carers are very attuned to the particular risks, they're more engaged in their young people's online lives. So this study that we've done um, has been uh, amongst a, a group of parents and their children. Um, and we've it's called Aussies Online. So in many of these studies, when we looked at demographics, we saw a huge digital disconnect between what children were actually experiencing online, like a 71% seen seriously harmful content online and only half of their parents being aware. But um, parents of young people with a disability are very engaged. They're setting digital controls, parental controls. They're talking to them. They're guiding their online experiences. And they're teaching them um, how to use these conversation controls before things go wrong. And they're encouraging them to have open conversations. Um, And these are the types of things we'd like to see more parents across the Australian community engaging in that way. How will you use these findings? Well, listen, I think awareness is a really important thing to do. Um, This was peer-reviewed research, and we also worked with a number of organizations that support people with disabilities, so so we know that we're we're onto something. So what I think we need to do is find increasing ways to use the internet in positive ways and maximize the benefits, but also be very alive to the risks. And certainly um, one of the things that we want to make sure that um, parents and carers know is that 
we are here if things go wrong and a child is being experiencing serious cyberbullying. We have a 90% success rate in terms of getting content down. If, if children, their parents or educators are reporting to the, the social media platforms and they're not coming down. So we are here as that safety net, but we've got lots of great resources and tips for, for, for parents and young people themselves. So the internet has been a, a great sort of liberator and a, a new playground creating opportunities for young disabled Australians. That must be encouraging for you, given all the negative things that we hear about the internet. Well, listen, I actually joined the technology industry in 1995, and I don't know a single person who joined a technology company thinking this is going to make the world online world worse. We saw so much uh, um, promise in the internet. And in fact, when I was in Washington, D.C. at what I call Tech Policy Ground Zero in the 90s, uh, you know, we were afraid that the internet was going to be overregulated and overtaxed and it would basically undermine its full potential. But instead, what we've seen is, you know, technology companies becoming a very powerful force in terms of getting um, governments to just stay out of the way. And here we are now um, at a, in a, with a fairly unregulated field. I mean, Australia was the first to have an online harms regulator eight years ago. We just, this year, we have the UK joining us, Fiji joining us, um, Ireland joining us, and the, the um, EU with the Digital Services Act. So, this is now becoming a newly regulated um, organization where they haven't had to put on e-brakes. They haven't been forced to embed those virtual seat belts or digital guardrails, what we call safety by design. But that's really starting to tip off. And I think generative AI and um, the massive supercharging of potential harms that these rapidly developing and unregulated technologies can bring has, has meant that a lot more governments and a lot more people in the community are really paying attention. A parliamentary committee yesterday recommended more action against the big tech companies. Your agency has given some companies orders and fines that they have ignored. What will it take to make these companies listen and ensure that vulnerable citizens are protected and not harmed? Well, I think that's a really good question. One of the things that we did last year was start something, uh, an organization called the Global Online Safety Regulators Network. And I just chaired um, my last meeting this year um, with my fellow uh, regulators from around the world. And th that is indeed a, a tactic of the big tech companies. They've got really the best technology lawyers and litigators in the world on their payroll. And so what they're doing with the Europeans, the Keneal and France, you know, they're getting hundreds of millions of dollars in fines and they're tying them up in litigation. So now we've seen the same thing and we're in litigation with uh, uh, X, uh, formerly known as Twitter, for the infringement notice. We provided them um, around not giving us truthful information through our transparency notices. And, um, you know, I won't be cowed by bullies. Uh, we will go through the litigation and um, we'll, we need to let that play out and the court will make those decisions. Um, but we need to follow these through. And I feel very confident that I've got the, the, uh, the, the confidence of the government behind us and they want us to be taking uh, significant, um, serious and, you know, obviously fair balance and balanced action. Um, but it, it can't it can't go on untouched. The you know the harms can last forever, not only to individuals but to society and democracy as a whole. Julian Mingrant, thanks for talking to AM. Thank you for having me. And Julian Mingrant is the eSafety Commissioner. 
When consumers looking to buy goods, they're increasingly thinking about the environmental impact of a product and marketers are responding by making lots of claims about the sustainability of their merchandise. But when does green advertising become greenwashing? Casey Briggs reports. If you're in the market for a new shampoo, makeup, energy provider or planning a holiday, chances are you'll be bombarded with ads talking up their products' green credentials, making claims like... Consciously created with sustainability front of mind. Affordable, natural and sustainable cleaning products. Join a movement shaping a cleaner future. Protection for you and the planet. Chandani Gupta is Deputy CEO of the Consumer Policy Research Centre. Most ads are vague, unhelpful and really unclear. It's really hard to put two uh, products side by side that have used the same green claims and be confident that they're offering the same thing. Thousands of Facebook ads making green claims have been gathered by a multi-university research project called the Australian Ad Observatory, which the ABC is a partner in. Professor Christine Parker is part of the project. The three most common words we found were clean, green and sustainable. In some cases, if you went to the company's website and dug into it, you might find information about what these terms mean. Uh, But we think that's too much of a burden on the consumer. The research, along with the thousands of examples of green claims uncovered, support the findings of an ACCC audit of environmental claims earlier this year. ACCC Deputy Chair Katrina Lowe says it turned up a number of concerning claims. This has been a compliance and enforcement priority for us since July this year and we have got a number of active investigations that we're undertaking. The regulator has published draft guidelines for advertisers which are expected to be finalised before Christmas. Now that we have outlined to the community what our expectations are. We're providing clarity and we expect businesses to do their part uh, in, in taking up those guidelines and making sure that the claims they are making are clear uh, and that they can be substantiated. But consumer advocates and researchers fear that won't be enough to stem the tide. Chandani Gupta again. We need to see a ban or definitions on generic environmental claims so that there's a clear and shared understanding of what these actual claims mean. You should be able to pick up something that says eco, bio, sustainable and be really confident with what it is that it's actually offering you. Chandani Gupta from the Consumer Policy Research Centre ending that report from Casey Briggs. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.